Well, good morning, good morning. Let's just jump right into it, shall we? We're going to start with a culture alert this morning. Last week, uh, in the context of the sermon, um, which I'm sure you've all mostly committed to memory at this point, but last week I mentioned that there there have been a number of self-appointed, self-described prophets who had confidently predicted that Donald Trump would win re-election in a landslide. So when the official counting ended, as we know, uh, uh, Trump was not declared the winner. But the voting irregularities that were surrounding it, the the concerns around the the vote, gave the prophets enough cover to say, no, no, we were right. Trump won in a landslide, but he has been cheated. So they doubled down. They went on to proclaim, you know, prophetically that God would do an incredible work on Inauguration Day, and that Trump would be sworn in as president. It did not happen. So, the prophetic, charismatic, new apostolic world was sent into a frenzy. What does this mean for all of our prophets? How could they have gotten this wrong? I think Bible-believing Christians should have immediately looked to Scripture to see what to do and what to think about these false prophets. Because there are hundreds of Scriptures dealing with false prophets and how dangerous they are and how they're just here to tickle our ears and tell us what we want to hear. Uh, And people could have looked those up, but they would have found something like Deuteronomy 18. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall be promoted. (laughs) He shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Here you go. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Don't listen to them. You don't need to pay him any never mind. It looks as though the Lord thinks this is a pretty serious issue. I don't want a bunch of people out saying things in my name that I haven't told them to say. But instead of consulting scripture, many suppose Bible-believing Christians ask the false prophets themselves to explain what happened regarding their false prophecy. One person said, A false prophet is not defined by one false prophecy, but by the motivation for the false prophecy. You know, they just had too much pride this one time. So it's not that we're false, we just just got this one wrong. Perhaps they had the wrong motivation. It doesn't erase the rest of the body of work. Mario Murillo, who's one of the big-time prophet guys, he actually wrote an article detailing this whole situation. It's a a lengthy, scriptural-sounding argument. And he goes back to this kind of obscure Old Testament story in 2 Kings about Elisha giving advice to King Jehoash. uh, And what is intended to be a descriptive account of what happened, just telling the story, Mario takes this one-time event and makes this prescriptive on how this should work for all the rest of us. So he says, Mario says in this article, There were true prophets and false prophets. And while their messages about Trump seemed the same, there was a stark difference. The true prophets rightly coupled the promise of Trump's victory with a call for the church to repent. But the false prophets spoke as if we were entitled to an automatic victory. 
So the true prophets got the message from the Lord that Trump would win, but only if the church repented. The false prophets forgot to add that little detail, which just kind of confused us all. Maybe you see where this is going. When Trump didn't win, Mario said, we could have taken more authority over demonic power. We needed the lukewarm to repent. That's why we saw the Supreme Court collapse and why Mike Pence and other Republican leaders chose to save their own political careers rather than save the nation. See, we just didn't take enough authority over the demons, which Jesus has done already, by the way. It's you lukewarm Christians, you let us down. We, the prophets, we gave you God's word. We didn't let you down, you let us down. You didn't repent enough. This kind of got me worked up. (laughs) But wait, there's more. But we did not get the full victory that would have come if the fraud had been exposed and overturned. That victory was in God's original plan, but the American church's response was simply too little too late. He goes on to say, the lethal combination of woke Christians, which would be those who doubt the false prophets, false prophets and assorted cowards combined to weaken the enforcement of the true prophecy that Trump would remain in the White House. You see the pattern here, right? The prophets were right. Well, not all of them. There are a few false prophets he's willing to concede. There are a few false prophets, probably none of his friends. Nobody that he hangs out with. They're all good prophets. They did their part. But you, church, you so-called Christians, you didn't do your part. You didn't confess enough. You didn't pray enough. You didn't have enough faith. And your failure to do your works... You handcuffed God. There was nothing he could do. He couldn't follow through on his plan. So God is only mostly sovereign. We see this, right? That's their argument. His ability to appoint kings and rulers is dependent on us. This is a lie. He is a false teacher, and this is dangerous. We're going to continue to point out false teaching and false teachers as we find them, because this is dangerous. And there are lots of people. I read hundreds of comments on this article. Yes, we have faith in our prophets. This makes total sense. It's a lie. You got that sermon for free. That's not even the main one today. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we are, we're grateful to be able to gather here again this morning. Um, but Lord, we are, we're concerned. We believe you are the sovereign, almighty God. We believe that you have a plan, and we believe that there's nothing we can do to mess up your plan. But we don't know what it is, and so we're concerned. We see all kinds of weird and confusing things in our culture. We see uh, Christians following after uh, false prophets and false teachers, and we see Christians fighting amongst themselves on who's Christian more than, than they are, and, and we're not woke enough. and we're not. All of these things are distractions, diversions from the gospel message. 
Lord, I pray as we continue to go through this book of Galatians that you just keep making this clear to us. We are about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing we can do to add to it. Once we are saved, we are called to do good works. We are called to be involved in the community. We're called to be bearers and ambassadors of your light and your truth. But there's nothing we can do to add to our salvation. Your grace is enough. I pray that we uh, come away here this morning knowing, believing, standing firm on that fact. Our works do not hinder your plan. Um, We just trust that you are the sovereign, almighty God. We thank you for your grace and your mercy always on display towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've made it through now four and a half of these six chapters in the book of Galatians, which on the whole, thus far, it seems safe to say this is a book seemingly obsessed with circumcision. But as we know now, circumcision is really just a symptom of the larger problem. It's just the surface issue. And that the act of circumcision, done for the wrong reasons and with the wrong motivation, represents something deeper and darker and much more profound for the churches in Galatia. It has become symbolic of the false teaching of a false gospel. There were teachers claiming that salvation was a requirement for salvation. Historically, as we know, having just gone through the book of Genesis, circumcision was a sign for the Jews that they were committed in in a covenant relationship with God. It was a visible reminder of their covenant relationship. But the false teachers, the Judaizers, believed and taught that this symbol was still required as a sign of, of a Christian being in the new covenant relationship, that the Gentile converts could could only be fully committed, they could only be fully vested in this special relationship with God if they received the sign of of the covenant, which they say was circumcision. But Paul knew, as did the rest of the church leaders, that this simply was not the case. So Paul's taking great pains here in this letter to try to free the, the churches in Galatia from the mental chains of bad theology. He has reminded them of his apostolic standing so they would listen to what he has to say. He's given them a brief history on the subject of circumcision to date. We already had a council about this among the other church leaders. We decided, no, it's not a requirement for for faith. Paul's used logical arguments, allegorical arguments, all dispelling this false teaching. He's begged them and scolded them and loved them, harangued them, called them knuckle-headed dimwits. He's even called them brothers and family. You get the impression here at four and a half chapters in that this issue is of no little consequence as far as Paul is concerned. He's using all the weapons in his arsenal to draw them back to the truth. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are no additives necessary. More importantly, there are no additives allowed. Or it becomes a false gospel. It becomes another gospel. Genuine salvation is the result of God's mercy being poured out in the life death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a gift of grace to us. And if we try to add our own works to it, it ceases being an act of grace. And here towards the end of the letter, Paul's kind of transitioning his argument just a little bit now. Since they're insistent on circumcision as a sign of faith, Paul's going to offer them an alternative sign of faith, another kind of sign of faith, by which we can tell, to some degree, who is a believer and who is not. Now this new sign Paul's going to introduce won't just impact our physical selves, like circumcision, 
it's going to impact our entire being. Physical, spiritual, emotional, relational. Everything about us is going to be impacted by this new sign of the covenant. And Paul's already kind of hinted at it in the buildup to where he is in the letter now. Back in chapter 3, Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So Paul's focus here is clearly on how circumcision is of no value to you as a person of faith. But you know what is a value? The Spirit. Through the Spirit, we wait for righteousness. And then last week's text ended with this kind of unusual verse, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Which kind of begs the question, if you claim to be a Christ follower and you get circumcised, is circumcision going to enhance your abilities to love your neighbor? Will circumcision help you serve one another better? I mean, honestly, it seems like circumcision would make those things harder, at least for a couple of days. But even discussing the topic is leading some to argue and fight and bite and devour one another. And Paul says, there is a better way. There's a better sign. There's a better indication of faith. Starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So what Paul alluded to earlier about the Spirit, he explicitly states here. You don't need circumcision. It's a symbol of the law, and it's only going to enslave you to the law. Circumcision is just giving into the flesh. It feeds your bad desires. It satisfies your need, your think, to contribute something meaningful to your salvation, except it doesn't. Because when it comes to salvation, works don't work. They just don't. In fact, Paul says the opposite is true. Literally, the desires of the flesh are against, opposed to the desires of the Spirit. So Paul sets them up as opposing forces here. The Spirit of God leads us to truth. And the truth is salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So if the Spirit of God leads us to truth, then the flesh, our works, would be the opposite of that. The works of the flesh would be not truth and not salvation. But it's more than that. The Spirit, as a sign of faith, as a sign of the new covenant, it gives you direction. It gives you purpose. It gives you meaning. Even if, at its most fundamental level, the purpose is just moving you away from sin. Moving you away from the desires of the flesh, the sin that keeps us enslaved. Paul says the Spirit keeps us from doing the things we want to do. Now, if you think about that for a minute, that's a pretty great and powerful admission. Paul admits that as Christ-following, God-honoring people, living that kind of lifestyle can be hard. 
it can be challenging. It feels like a never-ending battle between what we know we should do and what we really want to do. And everyone here, old enough to understand, knows what this means. We've all fought this battle. If the law says you should not do X, guess what? We want to do X, and sometimes two times. That old, you're not the boss of me mentality kicks in. And we want to do exactly what we should not do. And it's not because God doesn't want us to have any fun. It's because God is trying to protect us. Think about how easily this last year or so, we have all become so, well, most of us anyway, so addicted to technology. I mean, it's not the worst vice in the world. You have a screen in your hand all the time, playing on your phone. But look how easily we've gotten sucked into it. So when God says, you probably shouldn't do these things, it's for our own good. He created us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our tendencies better than we do. And guess what? Circumcision won't protect us from those things. Circumcision is not going to put up a fight to keep us from doing what we should not do. But the Spirit of God will. It will help keep us from doing the things we think we want to do, even though we know we shouldn't do them. Even though we're not under the law, even though that's still shaping our morality, there are still things we know we should not do, but we want to do them. The law is there for our protection. The Spirit is there for our defense. So Paul continues to draw out these opposing forces. Verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul's given us these two opposing forces, the life of the flesh and the life of the spirit. Now, when Paul says here that these are the works of the flesh, just something really important that we should understand. This is not intended to be an exhaustive list. If we think this is the list of things, the the don't list, you know there are going to be people somewhere who look at this and go, hey, wife beating's not on here. I'm good. (laughs) Woohoo, drug use didn't make the list, or tax cheating didn't make the list, or a myriad number of other things, the other wrongs, other sins that we're inclined to commit. Not here. It does not mean they're okay for us to do. This is not an exhaustive list. Paul's point is simply this. Without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which comes as a part of salvation, without the Spirit leading us, this is the direction our flesh would naturally go. This is how we're naturally inclined. We would do these kinds of things, not just these things. You notice at the end of the list he says, and these kinds of things. So this is more like, I don't know, maybe the top 15. It's not exhaustive, but it's, it's a good chunk of the list. The works of the flesh. And interestingly, I want us to see these as the two opposing forces. Interestingly, Paul starts with sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. 
Now, these are kind of variations on a theme. There are some slight differences between, but they're variations on a theme. So what we know to be true, Paul starts his list with this because these were problems at the time of Paul's writing. Having gone through Genesis, we know these were problems at the time of before Paul's writing. We know, based on the culture around us, these are problems today, and we're pretty sure these are going to be problems moving forward. So as long as there are people, sexual sins will be a problem. Now, primarily, I think that is because God made sexuality to be a significant part of creation, a significant part of who we are, and so the devil comes along and seeks to undermine it every opportunity he gets. God created man and woman. One man for one woman, one woman for one man. And somehow in that union, we're told this is a a clearer picture, a better understanding of who God is himself. These three persons existing as uh, as one, a self-sacrificing love and commitment. I mean, that's kind of the intent behind this union, to teach us more about God himself. So the enemy of God, naturally, is going to use the flesh to distort that picture at every opportunity. So we have more than one woman for one man. We have men who don't feel like men and women who don't feel like women and claim they are something other. Men and women with unnatural longings and inclinations. We even as a culture have cheapened sexual intimacy itself to be nothing more than a cardiovascular exercise as opposed to saving it for the safety and sanctity of marriage. When we talk about the sins of the flesh, these are always near the top. Interestingly, I think, idolatry is next. Because honestly, in my opinion, I think our culture has made sex and all those other things, we've made them into idols. When we self-identify, starting with our preferred sexual habits... When we say things like, I'm a gay Christian, that gives us an idea of where our priorities are. Sex has become an idol. But so has wealth and fame and sports and families and all kinds of things we easily make into idols. Calvin wrote, we've said this before, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. And it's true. Part of it's because we were created to worship God. We were created to worship And even if we worship Jesus, we find other things to start elevating into idol status as well. This is all a result of still living in the flesh. Sorcery is next on the list. This should be kind of an obvious one for us. You know, we should stay away from witchcraft and black magic and voodoo and horoscopes and playing around with Ouija boards and all have demonic influence attached to them in some form or fashion. They're all opposed to the Spirit of God. Paul warns us against enmity, which is just a deep-rooted hatred. It's a deep hatred, which shows up early in Scripture, Genesis 3. Eve listens to the lie of the serpent, and the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. It's It's a hatred. We're to avoid developing that kind of hatred towards anyone or anything, which often, enmity often leads to strife. It creates conflict, ongoing quarreling or contentiousness. We become entirely disagreeable. It's not how we're supposed to live. How can you live with strife and love your neighbor? You see how those are opposed. 
Well, the next few words, I think, we can kind of group together as well. Jealousy and fits of anger, we tend to think of these as self-control issues. Uncontrolled jealousies can lead to rivalries, also on the list. Uncontrolled fits of anger can lead to dissensions and divisions, also on the list. And when those jealousies and, and fits of anger go unchecked and uncontrolled, jealousy leads to envy, which is a more extreme kind of jealousy. When we are not only jealous of what someone else has or what we wish we had, we, we now start to uh, wish ill will on them. We, we hope things go bad for them. It makes us ugly. It makes us bitter. It makes us mean. And Paul closes out this warning list of spirit-less activities with drunkenness and orgies. We know what drunkenness is. You know, not personally. But drunkenness is always condemned in Scripture. Um, You may remember that Noah was the first person to be recorded as being drunk in the Bible, and it did not go well for him or his daughters. Drunkenness is always out. And orgies, the, the, the word for orgies really has to do with extreme activity of any kind. It, it's extreme of whatever else is on the list. It could even include drunkenness, rioting, carousing, sexual activity is what we typically think of. But the word orgy just means extreme behaviors. So when we're involved with these kinds of behaviors, when, when, when we allow them, when we allow them, we participate in them, we seek them out even, and again, this is not a complete list, but it's a pretty good idea of the kind of living Paul's talking about. When we are involved with these kinds of behaviors, it is generally an indication that we're not living by the Spirit, but we're living according to the flesh. We're following the desires of the flesh rather than the desires of God, and Paul does not mince his words here. Nor should we when we're dealing with sin. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no equivocation in what he says. He doesn't say, these are horrible things. If you do them, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Unless you've done a lot of other really good stuff to help balance it out. But let's be very clear here. Paul is not just providing us a list of do's and a list of don'ts. He's not singling out these activities as especially sinful or especially dangerous, so we all better avoid the dirty 15. Paul's point is bigger and deeper than just this list of bad behaviors. Paul is saying that these behaviors reveal a deeper problem. These behaviors point out a spiritual problem. They, in fact, reveal a lack of the Holy Spirit. These are all indications of the absence of the Holy Spirit. So it's the lack of the Spirit of God, not just these behaviors. It's the lack of the Spirit of God that prevents us from inheriting the kingdom of God. This is important. We need to be sure we're understanding this because there are people, there are many people who might say, but you know, I don't do any of the things on that list. Well, I haven't in a while. I don't do them often. It's like a regular thing for me. But I don't do those, so I must be okay. Surely I will be accepted into the kingdom of God. And now we're back to a works-based salvation. It's based on what we do, but also based on what we haven't done in a while. 
So Paul goes on to say, these things, yeah, you should be doing this, but it's the Spirit that counts. Having the Spirit of God that comes as a result of the salvation offered through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit leads us not just away from the sins of the flesh, but towards the fruits of the Spirit. So that a true believing, right living, you know, mostly Spirit-following Christian will not be a regular practitioner of these things, but here's an entirely different set of traits that they should exhibit. Next verse, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, just like the list of fleshly pursuits, this is not intended to be an exhaustive list of the fruits of the Spirit either. It's often portrayed as, this is the list. This is an indication of what a Spirit-filled life looks like. It's not a comprehensive list of all that the Spirit does. So again, Paul's larger point is to highlight this contrast between a Jesus-following, Spirit-led Christian life versus a self-centered, even law-abiding, give or take, flesh-filled life. So Paul gives us this list of qualities that are marked by the presence of the Spirit. And he starts with love. And he goes right for the big guns here. Because this is that word most of us probably are familiar with, agape. It's, it's the big love, right? This is, this is what we refer to as unconditional love. It's the kind of love that God has for man. It's the kind of love that we would like to think we have for God. It's the kind of love we're supposed to have for a fellow man. But it's not just a warm and fuzzy feeling. It's bigger. It involves goodwill and kindness and benevolence. It's how we treat other people. It's this comprehensive caring about other people. Well, right away, we see the first item on this list and the first item on the other list. It's a pretty stark difference. The flesh list is mostly me-centered. In fact, as a culture, again, we've bought into the lie that sex is love, or it's the expression of love, when in truth, sexual immorality is all about me. How I feel, what's best for me, it's all me, me, me. So Paul immediately shows us this stark contrast between a flesh-led life and a spirit-led life. And he starts with love. He moves on to joy, which is an outward expression. An outward expression of happiness or gladness. So that if you have the spirit in you, if you have experienced forgiveness of sins, if you are recognized that you are an adopted heir into the kingdom of God, you ought to have a little bit of joy. But as we know, we've all met believers who seem to be the most sour, woeful, unpleasant people on the planet. And at some point, maybe it's just me, but I doubt it, at some point you have to wonder, are they even real believers? Is there some kind of Eeyore faith I'm not aware of that allows you to be Spirit-filled, but grumpy all at the same time? 
Because a lack of joy, an ongoing, constant lack of joy, does not seem to square with the fruits of the Spirit. Or the fruit of the Spirit. But we've also probably met those people, I've met a couple in my life, who seem to have too much joy. Like it's a manufactured, put-on, spray-tan kind of fake joy. And again, probably just me, but I always feel like they're trying to convince me of something. Real joy is noticeable. It's not fake smiling through hardship and pain, but it is a keen and ever-present awareness that this life is not all there is. It may be dark tonight, it may be dark now, but joy comes in the morning. Joy leads us to hope. Real joy knows that God keeps his promises, and it may not be how and when we'd like, but he'll do it. Real joy is independent of current circumstance. And real joy starts to pave the way towards peace. The word that's translated here for peace, it's, it's the equivalent of the Old Testament word shalom. It means soundness, well-being, completeness. It's, it's a big, giant meaning behind peace. I think this is the idea that Paul expresses when he wrote Philippians 4. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because Paul believed he could do all things. He could endure all things through Christ. And so Paul had peace. Peace is a a spiritual, mental, physical sense of well-being, even when it doesn't seem possible. I think peace may may best be described as freedom from worry. Remember, this this is a fruit of the Spirit. And honestly, I think we would all admit this one can be a little elusive. Peace can be hard sometimes. We get caught up in all kinds of worry. Where's our country headed? But the guy in the news said, Are my investments safe? What about those Reddit guys? Wait a minute. One mask or two masks or no mask? What are we supposed to do? It's almost as though our culture is designed to rob us of joy and peace. Which is where the Spirit of God living in us says, I got you. You're an heir of Almighty God. Your kingdom is waiting. It's got your name on it. Stay steady. Listen to the Spirit. Be patient. We got this. And here's the amazing thing. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably experienced this. When we begin to really get our arms around, understand agape love, not completely, we'll never fully get it until we're standing before God in heaven. When we, when we begin to understand even the, the bigger, broader idea of that, when we start to get a handle on what real joy is, when we start to understand the peace that passes understanding, 
then we start to ease up a little bit on stress. And we can practice a little more patience towards ourselves and others. And then it becomes so much easier to practice kindness. When the weight and the stress and the pressure is off of us to do enough good to earn our salvation, when that's no longer a concern, when we can trust completely that the salvation offered through Christ is not dependent on us, we can be kind to all kinds of people just to be kind. It's not going to be judged. We're not behind our quota. It's not going to go on our permanent record. We can be kind just to be kind. We can be good to people just to be good. Because we are now supernaturally charged towards kindness and goodness. Because we were created for good works. We were created for faithfulness. We were created for gentleness. These were traits that were there in us all along. We were created in the image of God. And these things describe God. So we have them too. But we have added layers of sin. Layers of neglect and guilt and idolatry and more sin on top of all of these things. We were being controlled by the desires of the flesh. But once we recognize our sin, once we understand that sin hinders us from God, we accept his gift of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes in and says, all right, it's time for a little house cleaning. Or in some cases, all right, I'm bringing in the whole crew. You need help. So let's start, by, let's start by polishing up the love a little bit. Let, let's make sure we start to understand agape love. Let, now let's start cleaning up joy. And, and let, let's start taking the layers of dust and debris off peace. And, and then these other fruits begin to emerge. We become more spirit-filled, more spirit-led as we move along. It kind of reminded me, as I was thinking of it this week, uh, the, the stories that you read about periodically of the guy that finds an old expensive car found in an abandoned barn somewhere. You know, you see those stories? Someone buys it and restores it. You know, I mean, it's this beat-up, ugly, years of neglect, layers of dust and dirt. It's a horrible, hideous thing. But someone comes along and shows it some love, some care, some concern, a little effort. It's lovingly restored to what it was intended to be all along. This is kind of like the spirit the role of the Spirit in us, to restore us to our originally intended state. To make us more holy, for God is holy. To become more Christ-like. To learn how to die to self and live for Christ. He says, for those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. They've killed it off. They've pushed it aside. Well, they're working in that direction anyway along with all passions and the desires that are opposed to the Spirit and the will of God, with the help of the Spirit, we're cleaning up. We're, we're restoring. We're becoming new men and new women. And we move from the desires of the flesh list to the fruit of the Spirit list. You know, mostly. And the truth is, we continue to struggle between the pull of the flesh and the desire for the Spirit but over time, with the power and the help of the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit mature, and they grow, and they increase, and the desires of the flesh weaken and shrink and become less important to us. 
This is the process of sanctification. Becoming Christ-like. It's a movement towards holiness. But the emphasis, the, the order is important here. Paul keeps reminding us that if we rely on the obedience to the law, if we rely only on our own morality, our own ability to be good, whatever that means, we'll never achieve what we say we want to achieve. I mean, we can say we're spiritual all day long. We have a culture full of spiritual people. They do spiritual things. Donate to charity and join in community cleaning days and work at the food bank and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Those are spiritual things. But if we don't address our real sin problem, if we don't get the help and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, then we will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we'll end up in hell, but I guess feeling good about all the spiritual work we've done. The choice Paul lays out here is stark and it's clear. The flesh, trying to live up to the law, living to our own standards of of righteousness and morality, versus living a life that is led and influenced by the Spirit. It's a difference. This is a sign for us in the New Covenant. Are we Spirit-led? Are we flesh-led? Remember, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's how he started this section. For freedom, Christ set us free. So accept freedom from sin which has nothing to do with circumcision, by the way. Accept freedom from sin. Accept freedom to live a life of joy and peace and love. And let the Spirit do its work in you. Paul ends with another little warning here at the end. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So if we say we live by the Spirit then let's live by the Spirit. Let's let it lead us and guide us and direct us. And the warning here is that we not allow ourselves to get conceited. Don't get caught up in your spiritual progress so you start comparing yourself to others. And well, at least I'm not that guy. Look how much better a Christian I am than them. We start to feel more spiritually superior than these other people. You know, like the prophets on the rest of you. The false prophets on the rest of you. You're not worshiping enough. You're not repenting enough. You're not praying enough. That's why our prophecies didn't come true. Or even we start to think, man, I wish I was as spiritual as those people. Because we all do this, I mean, at least a little bit, one time or another. We compare ourselves with other people. So we need this warning. Because the truth is, Christians can be among the judgiest people in the world. Like somehow we completely forget that we are all miserable, rotten, stinking sinners. So the Spirit, when we listen, when we keep in step with the Spirit, reminds us to love. Big agape love. So don't feel superior to someone who stumbles in their Christian walk. Help them. Comfort them. Cry with them when they need to cry. Rejoice when they need to rejoice. Don't feel envious of someone who seems to have their act together better than you do. You know what you could do? Ask them for pointers. How did you guys deal with kids who were completely obnoxious? And of course, all good Christians say, well, we never had any of those. (laughs) Ask them for... 
My mother, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> ask people for pointers. If you see them doing things well, ask them, how did they decide to do that? Why are they doing that? Ask them if they're interested in mentoring you a little bit. You know, it's supposed to be older men teaching younger men and older women teaching younger women. And the idea for, is for us to grow personally, spiritually, grow personally, but it also helps the body grow. We grow together. That's how it's supposed to work. And this, this message, I think, is so timely because we are going to see increased persecution from the culture. We all expect that. I don't know if you saw this now, but um, Twitter's now uh, suspended um, Focus on the Family account because they dared mention that Biden's new pick for the health whatever is a transgender, and it says a man who says she's a woman because they defined what transgender meant. That is hate speech. We're going to be persecuted in various ways and forms, but we're also going to see some from within the church like the prophets, false prophets, telling you you're not Christian enough because you don't do things the way they think that you should do them. Christians telling each other that we're not Christian enough, we don't support the right causes. Don't be taken in by the lies. Listen to how the Spirit is leading you. If you're in doubt, search the Scriptures. If you're in doubt, ask somebody else who you trust. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't be swayed by the false prophets. Don't be swayed by the judgy Christians. And don't, as much as possible, give in to the pool of the flesh. Live by the Spirit and enjoy the fruit of the Spirit, because that's what it's intended to do. Make life enjoyable, as enjoyable as it can be, until we all gather in the kingdom. For freedom... Christ made us free. Let's pray. Lord, it's amazing that this, uh, these old, outdated books that were written in totally different contexts and environments and really have nothing to do with us today, it's amazing how much they have to do with us today. People, by and large, don't change. The flesh does not change. The only chance of change we have is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we're grateful for the gift of salvation. We're grateful that at the time we recognize our sin, we, we repent and ask for forgiveness, we, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit who is there as our helper, as our assist, as our guide. And Lord, I pray as we leave here this morning um, that we continue to uh, maybe even really reconsider whether we're still in the old car version or the new shiny car version? Do we still have uh, a lot of work to do or just a little work to do in cleaning out our spiritual house? Lord, I pray that we just give the Holy Spirit free reign. We, we listen on how you are leading us. We all have different areas of weakness and different areas of strength, and, and so it's not going to be the same for all of us, but I pray that you give us um, a sensitivity towards how the Spirit is leading this week, and, and not just in how to deal with our own um, spiritual condition, but to give us real discernment in how we are looking at culture. We know of so many church-related issues happening in our community around us. Lord, I pray that we become a, a center of truth, um, that we become a center of good 
solid biblical teaching um, and that we can be a resource for people who are struggling. We, we pray for uh, the women's Bible study that's going to start this next week, Lord, that that would be a time of, of good connections between women throughout the community, not just this church, but throughout the community um, as we seek to help the body of Christ grow. We pray for their leading and for their teaching, and you know who will be here and, and what needs to be shared. Um, but, but I also pray for the rest of us as we go out into our, our uh, circles, spheres of influence, that you would give us courage, that you would give us wisdom, um, that we would be um, just better ambassadors for the gospel. We thank you for your ongoing love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.